Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Hey, this is Michael Alago from Who the F is That Guy documentary, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Welcome to the Metal Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. This is episode 172, and guess what, everybody? Michael Alago has returned. So good to talk to Michael again. He's promoting a new book, a memoir, called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. Now, some of our astute listeners will remember that early on, and really our first real guest, about episode he was, yeah. 40, it's in the early 40s, which we're on 172 now, it's crazy. Uh, Michael came on to talk about his documentary, which is still on Netflix, Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. If you don't know, which first of all, we're an All Metallica podcast. Thanks for coming. We don't know where you've come from or why you haven't heard <laughs> us before now, but we're glad you're here. We're an All Metallica podcast. As I just said, that we do once a week. Uh, usually, Ethan and I are on tour all over the world in planes, trains, right. buses, and hotels. And uh, we make time once a week to talk about our favorite metal band, the Mighty Metallica. Michael Alago is a special person in the Metallica story because he signed them to Elektra Records in 1984, thus bringing, thus bringing Metallica to the masses. So we're all grateful to him. He's such a cool guy, interesting storyteller. And I read his book, and it's wonderful. I can't recommend it more. Uh, it's a really quick read, amazing stories about coming up in Brooklyn and Working at the Ritz and then getting the the A and R gig and coming across band, not just Metallica but the way he brushed up against Patti Smith, White Zombie, uh, the Dead Boys, all of it. Nina Simone, he's he, it's Cindy a crazy Lopper. long list. Yeah, he's just done some amazing stuff. So he will. Uh, we had a lovely combo with him, Ethan and I. We just finished it, right? It's so good to see him, and we we have video of all this too. So that's going to go up early for patrons. And then it'll go up a week later, the video part for uh, everyone on the That's YouTube, right. honey, please. Oh, please. I'm looking at you right now. You look good. Thank you. You look you look fantastic as well. I see a lot of paper in your hand. I'm holding a lot of papers. None of them have to do with the episode. Just paper. Just they're just it just, it just papers. It makes you it makes you look important. I'm just having fun rustling papers. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right, cool. So before we get to our wonderful combo with Michael Alago, let's knock out some of this housekeeping. Uh, you want to hit the iTunes Patreon. Yeah, man. Okay, so if you guys uh, would like to, it's the easiest thing you can do. It helps us get a little uh, more noticed. It just helps us, you know, get up in the ranks of uh, noticeability on on iTunes. Just leave us a review. It's really easy. A five star review, maybe a little blur what you what you like about it. That would be great. It really helps us. It has for a long time, and uh, we're really appreciative of it. And we also have this thing called Patreon, which is p a t r e o n dot com slash metal up your podcast. Uh, it's a way for you to give back to the show uh, and just support us in a little bit of a way. It doesn't cost that much. We usually ask about five bucks a month, a cup of coffee or two a month. So much content over there we've given out. We're doing a, a quarantine cover series right now. We're up to what, 18, Clint, and 19? 18. So if you don't know what that is, we've been doing two cover songs a week that we let our patrons decide for us. And uh, if you sign up for the Patreon, really at any level, even if you're at the dollar level, 
uh, you get all of those songs and whatever song. I think we're going to keep doing this maybe for one more month, Ethan, the, the uh, yeah. quarantine covers. We'll play for you our very special cover this week of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, which was requested by our friend and patron Chad Pollock, a song that's really important to him and his family. And uh, people have been asking us, Ethan, to collaborate. People really, people really want to hear us sing a song together. We just need to give... Uh, it, it perplexes me why. Um, I know. But, it, but maybe we just need to give the people what they need and do a little bit of uh, Never Tear Us Apart by NXS or something. That or maybe a Lionel Richie tune. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen. Or a Hulkster in maybe? Heaven or something. Oh my gosh, a Hulkster in Heaven duet. But we did we did collaborate on this Pink Floyd cover for this week. I, right. I played acoustic and sang the song. Ethan uh, did all the beautiful lap steel. And then we put out the Paul Moak bat signal and mm-hmm. got Paul to play organ and piano. And then Paul generously mixed and mastered it for free. So yeah. we'll play it that really, a little later. Go ahead. really turned out well, man. I, I listened to it a few times uh, just yesterday and mm-hmm. uh, really happy with how it came out, man. For, especially for all of us doing it remotely at our respective studios. Yeah, it turned out great. So that's just another reason to get excited about the quarantine covers over there. So we'll let the Patreon thing drop for now, but that's what's going on. Uh, you can go follow us on all the socials. Oh, my God. We tried in a massive disaster <laughs> to do a Facebook Live yesterday. Yeah. We didn't quite realize you can't uh, have two people in the same conversation on the desktop version of Facebook, but uh, only in the iOS. And uh, We're working our way around it. We're going to try to figure that out. We want to start doing some more interactive video content with the listeners out there. So come follow us on all the socials to keep up with that, Instagram, Facebook. Twitter and we're on Stitcher and Spotify, of course, YouTube. And uh, we're going to be doing different Facebook Live. YouTube does a live thing. We've been doing the Instagram thing, Periscope. We're going to just try to find different ways to get connected with the listeners from all over the world. Mm -hmm. You can go listen to our other uh, podcasts. Ethan's called The Pirate Satellite. Mine's called I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay. And then I was a guest recently on the Hook Rocks podcast and the Lone Star Plate podcast talking about Metallica podcasting, food, all sorts of fun stuff. You can go awesome. find it wherever you find stuff. You can find stuff. And by the way, we have two new patrons this week. Mm-hmm. We have Helle Boucher and MF Brado. Awesome. So Thanks, guys. Big hand for them. Thank you so much for joining the Patreon train. Hope you're enjoying all the extra content we're dishing out over there. I mean, when you sign up on Patreon, I know I said we're going to stop talking about it, but here we are. You just get, <laughs> you immediately get like four or five albums of Metallica covers, all of the quarantine covers. You it unlocks the way they have it is they have these posts that it unlocks for you you get bonus tracks from ethan's album let it burn you get a bunch of lunar satan demos it's cool it's just cool sauce over there plus you get yeah. to sleep at night knowing that you're supporting your favorite podcast that's right so you can write into us metal up your podcast show at gmail.com we love hearing from the family and we're going to do that now what we lovingly refer to ethan now as the, the email, email portal, portal. Okay, you want to get us started? I would love to. Our first email is from our, our good friend who is uh, always uh, showing up on the uh, socials and uh, we do live streams, uh, Namarta uh, Kali, uh, Kalia. Excuse me. Uh, she says, Duders, just finished the episode about the back to the front uh, on my way back from work. I'm in the middle of reading my copy while watching the Metallica Money concert tonight. As I'm reading the emotional description of the bus accident and Cliff's death, Orion begins to play loud on my speakers. Sorry for the setless spoiler. Um, feeling a sense of divine intervention and my heart feels heavy. Uh, the intensity of the song mirrors Cliff's intensity for music. The book really pulls at the heartstrings. Hmm. Feeling extremely connected to my uh, bass solo take one tattoo. 
Uh, she goes on to say, I love this band so much. I'm happy there's a community to share it with. Your your comments on the book and Tom's were astute and moving. Well, thank you. Lovely. Uh, basically, what I'm trying to say is thanks for existing, guys. Much love to Marta. She says, P.S. I don't think I've ever mentioned that I'm actually from New Jersey. Well, we all are in, a, in, a, in our own way. That's actually, she's technically from the mainland. Well, that's awesome, Namarta. So she's, you know, she was having this sort of uh, serendipity moment while reading the book and listening to the show, and the song comes on, and she's got a cliff tattoo. So music's cool in that way that it, it there's a symbiotic relationship you can have with that kind of thing, and it's cool that she thought to write to us when that happened to her. And I will say yeah, awesome. uh, to to, to Namarta. I was talking about having some mental health struggles on an Instagram live recently, and she wrote me a very sweet message, uh, very encouraging, cool, sweet message. So the fact that we have listeners out there that are so thoughtful and kind and cool makes me feel really proud to uh, be a part of Metal Every Podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. Our next email is from Patrick Ackerman, who says, Hey guys, my name's Patrick, and I'm from Sweden! Sweden! Found your podcast two weeks ago and feels like I've listened to you almost 24-7 since then. Well... 10 out of Sorry. 10 doctors do not recommend doing that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he's a he's smiley face. Love it. Big shout out to you for all the work you put into it. I became a Patreon almost at once. Well, thank you, Patrick. And Namarta's also a patron, too. So thanks, guys, for that that's support. Right. I'm a big fan of Metallica, Ben, since the Black Album era when my cousin introduced it to me, 11 years old. My dad has always pushed me for hard rock and introduced me to Zeppelin, Deep Purple, ACDC, Bowie, Sabbath, so on. So when I got home with the Black Album, I had the chance to give back. He was hooked. Nowadays, we share the experience, go to the concerts, and talk all about Metallica together. What a beautiful thing Amazing to share the love of Metallica with your parents or with your kids. Mm. It's so cool. Um, yeah. He says, James is a big role model. I just finished listening to your four episodes on him, and they were amazing. And at the end, hearing your version of Turn the Page was really touching. Hopefully, the release of the quarantine version of Blackened is the start of something great again. They have many years left. Totally. He says, thanks again Absolutely. for all your work. It's so fucking amazing. All of it. What a nice email from Patrick. Thanks. And, thanks, uh, Patrick, from Sweden. You can hear my cover of Turn the Page on Cover Our World Blackened Volume 4? I don't even four, know. the last one? I don't know either. <laughs> I really <laughs> I don't know. I, you know. I think it was 4. Volume 3 was the 90s stuff. So but, volume uh, Right. So Volume 4 is only available to patrons. And the way that that usually works is, so you can go to Bandcamp. It's metalupyourpodcast.bandcamp, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you can hear the fir- all the first three versions of Cover Our World Blackened. And they have anywhere from 8 to 10 songs each of, of sort of reimagined Metallica covers. Right. And you can either stream it for free there or buy it from Bandcamp. The fourth one's only available for patrons until Volume 5 comes out. And uh, and then you get them all for free on Patreon. So that's right. Yeah. A quick shout out. To that. Thanks, Patrick, for the sweet email. Appreciate it, dude. Thank you. The sweet email. The sweet email. What a sweet email. <laughs> sweet, dude. Sweet. Uh, all, right. all right. Next email is from Dave Fredericks. He says, "Guys, have you done a review on Demo Magnetic? I believe this is part of the Death Magnetic Coffin box set. Just finished to listen through, and it was I was curious on your take. I'm only on episode 47. Maybe you covered that already. Nope. Keep up with the Metallica Mondays review commentary episodes, at least as long as the boys are posting shows from Dave. Yeah. So we should talk about that real quick. So we did not do last week's Metallica Monday um, right. because we had another episode in the can. I was out of town." And we we looked at the set list and it was the by request tour, which is a pretty exciting time. The set list was pretty cool, but we yeah. we um we didn't we didn't do it. We just had a busy week because I was out of town. So I think we're moving a little bit yeah. away if there, from if there those was episodes. Any of you, Go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think we're kind of playing by ear every Monday when we see what show it is. We're like, okay, that sounds exciting. Let's maybe cover that. Yeah. Clint was out of town, but I actually tuned in for about 40 minutes or so. Um, and uh, I threw a couple little funny comments out there. But, yeah, it was it was a cool show. I, I, I thought it was probably one of the looser of the shows they've aired. But uh, still enjoyable for sure. But we'll see what happens next Monday. I heard Kirk was pretty loosey-goosey. Um, I haven't checked pretty it out yet. Pretty loosey-goosey. Uh, you know, Dave Matthews is doing the same thing now on Wednesdays. So, oh, cool. My, my, I haven't seen one yet, but I'm like, wow, how many of these can I watch in a week? Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. In terms of Demo Magnetic, we haven't covered that yet. I have, I have it, and I've listened to it. Um, what, what's really made a lot of sense, Ethan? I think you'll agree. Is as we go through the Year in the Life series, it just makes more sense to camp out on non-Year in the Life episodes around that time. So when yeah, we get to 2008-ish, when we're around Death Magnetic, that's when we'll probably dive into Demo Magnetic mm-hmm. and all the stuff around, you know, surrounding that album. So thanks for the email. Agreed. And Dave's a patron too. I think everyone who wrote in this week is a patron. Amazing. David Young writes, Clint Ethan, you guys are hilarious and have helped reignite my love for Metallica. I'm only 12 episodes in, so maybe you suck after 169 episodes. <laughs> yeah, we do. Either way, I'm trying to catch up as fast as possible. Um, I always wonder about the people who binge like that way because the show's got to be so different, right? It's got to be different than it was three years ago. Yeah, I, I haven't so. heard those episodes since we did them, but I know totally. Anyway, he says, I'll say that I have lost touch with Metallica in the past 15 years with brief stints of listening. I completely forgot how much I enjoyed Death Magnetic until I re-listened to it just now. He says, if you don't like The Unforgiven 3, then F you. It's a musical (laughs) masterpiece. I think I liked every song on that album up until The Judas Kiss. Boo. I'm looking forward to listening to that podcast when you guys review it. Again, I haven't listened to this album in years, and it amazes me that I completely forgot how good it was. Thank you for getting me back into it. And we've gotten that a lot, where... The podcast has, mm-hmm. has really just helped someone get excited or, or get reacquainted with their love of the band. And, you know, that's a hell of a compliment. That makes me proud also. Yeah, absolutely it is. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. All right, our last email is short and simple from Michael Cressy. He says, hey, Clint Ethan, hope you're all doing well during these strange times. I like well, it. It's uh, short yeah. and sweet. As well as we can. Yeah, as well as we can be doing. You know, it's uh, on one end, it sucks to, you know, not be on the road making money and stuff like that and playing music and working in music. But I will say, man, it's been kind of nice to be off the road for a bit, you know, all things considered. Uh, You know, more family time, more home time, you know, friends will stop by and we'll kind of keep it safe in the backyard. And uh, I just feel like I've been a little more connected ever since this happened. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's been a forced slowing down of Mm -hmm. reconsidering priorities. And and yeah, that has been good. I've been just trying to drink less and get outside more, get up early. Um, go on bike rides, hang out with my kid. Yeah. And then also, it's, it's a great opportunity for me because co-writing is basically not happening. Right. Um, so the last two months, I've just really, for the first time in many years, just been writing songs for myself. Yeah. And that's been great. And of course, one another feature, and I'll, we'll end with this, another feature of the Patreon is every month at a certain level, I don't know what it is over there, but you get all the songs I write and demo that month, which is it can be anywhere from 5 to 18 songs. So that, mm-hmm. I've been doing that since January. So That's amazing. You know, There's just a lot of stuff over there. So we're going to leave the email corner now. You're going to hear a little commercial for Patreon, and then you're going to hear our cover of Wish You Were Here. And then we'll come back and say something after that and introduce our buddy Michael. What do you say, Ethan? Sounds great to me. <laughs>
and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon. That's right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon. For $5 a month or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all. In addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free downloads of every cover our world black and ep ticket giveaways for shows like snm2 and slain castle box sets rare vinyl metallica memorabilia like snm2 guitar picks email priority meaning we'll read your email first on the show the chance to ask guests like hailstorm jay weinberg of slipknot and metallica row crew your very own questions and the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our metal tales bonus episodes in which you can tell us all about any Metallica show you've been to in the past. All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal Up Your Podcast. We 
couldn't do this show without you. And to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you. Peace. Adios. All right, well, we hope you liked that cover of Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here. You can hear all those quarantine covers immediately downloadable over on the Patreon. The Patreon portal. Now, Michael Alago, we've talked a little bit at the top of the show about his deal. Electra A&R representative who signed Metallica. He's got a new book out called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. And, you know, we didn't even get into a lot of that stuff. You know, he's, he, he survived AIDS, which we didn't talk about as much. Yeah, uh, he's just had such an amazing life, and uh, if you I haven't know, seen man. his documentary, which is called "Who the Fuck Is That Guy?" The Fabulous Journey of Michael Lago, that's on Netflix too. The book and the documentary are both great little compendium things you can check out while also listening to this episode. And uh, we had some really warm and nice uh, uh, chats with Michael after Absolutely. we ended the episode. He's just such a sweetie pie. And, he is. Uh, and I think if we asked him to be on the show on every episode, he would do it. He's that sweet. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, he's got a lot to say, and he's such a fascinating storyteller, so we think you're all going to like mm-hmm. it. So without further ado-do, let's welcome in our buddy, Michael Alago. Let's go. Master! Master! All right, well, we're here with the wonderful Michael Alago, who is, uh, he was the first guest on our show. It's so good to see your face again, especially in such weird times, a friendly face in the Metallica world. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be so glad to hear from you again. You're promoting a book which is called I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, which I read this morning, by the way, Michael. Wait, you read the whole book this morning? I did. Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I kept it easy for everyone. It's a very easy read, yeah. It is, uh, because I made, like, lots of short chapters. So if you you want to just go to the chapter that's uh, uh, Never Fall in Love with a Hooker, (laughs) honey, you know what you're going to get when you go there. It's right. a complete thought. You know, if you go to the Ritz, if you go to Metallica, if you go to Nina Simone, Patti Smith, bah, bah, bah. I, I make it easy for everybody so that they can read the whole thing. And, you know, it starts in Brooklyn in 1959 when I was born, and it goes up to, like, right this minute. Yeah, man, that's awesome. You know what I found interesting about it, Michael, is I just read Woody Allen's bio, his new bio as well, and it had wow. that same very New York kinetic energy. It's you and all these great historic clubs and coming up in the New York scene. And even before that, just you going to school in Brooklyn, it had that great fast pace. And honestly, it was a joy to read. It was easy to read. It went fast. I had a great time. Well, that's what we know how to do in New York. We're always at fast pace. Right. <laughs> yeah. Why the Why the book now? You know, we last time we talked to you was about your documentary, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, sure. which we loved. And is that oh, still yeah. on Netflix, by the way? Oh, absolutely. You know, we've gotten such rave responses to it that they kept us up this last two years. And I think we have at least until September 2020 up there and we're crossing our fingers for more. So, yes, it's on Netflix. And I don't know, about nine months ago, a year ago, it started on Amazon Prime. Right. You know, the reason for the book now is because uh, a little book company saw the documentary. They're called Backbeat Books. They asked me if I had more stories. And I thought to myself, do I have more stories? <laughs> of course on. I do. You know, um, you know, you can't tell everything in a documentary because, uh, you know, it, it, things would just get too long. So you put in the highs and the lows and uh, you just keep moving. So when they asked if I wanted to make a book, I said, Sure. Um, but I have a bit of a scatterbrain. I know that I couldn't do this on my own. So I have a, a dear old friend, my friend, Laura Davis, um, 
she just popped back into my life because of my agent, Lee Sobel. And um, I asked her if she would help me out. Now, I don't even remember half of my life, but <laughs> I, I kept journals like my entire life. Hmm. And like, who would think that a kid from Brooklyn, you know, in the 70s was going to keep journals or they weren't even like diaries. They were like in composition books and stuff. Yeah. And there was nothing, there was nothing poetic or creative about it, but it was lists. I'm taking the train from Brooklyn to Manhattan. I'm going to go to three nights of the dead boys in the damned at CBGB, you know, and that went on for like years. Was it every day? No, but almost. Right. It almost sounds like you were basically uh, using Twitter back then, but an analog version of it. <laughs> Correct. Just documenting every step of the way. I did. I really did. And so those little sentences and time periods kind of jogged my memory so that I could put this book together. So I just started vomiting everything out and Laura uh, transcribed it. And then sometimes when when it wasn't sounding like me anymore, I had to say to her, no, 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 you, we've added too many things here. You may have taken a little bit too many liberties. It's got to go back to sounding like my voice because that's what everybody knows. And like, put another beautiful muscled man in there, make it sound more like a Lago. Hello. <laughs> uh, Hello. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Backbeat Books asked me if I wanted to make a book. We started about two and a half years ago, and here we are in 2020. The book was released uh, March 25th, and it's available on Amazon.com. So you kind of went into it just now, but I've always wondered this. So when you've got someone helping you write it and put it together, so are you just having like a coffee or a lunch and sort of dictating and going through notes, and then she's making sense of it all, or what is the sure. process like? Uh, you know, Laura stayed at home most of the time. She has MS. So it's kind of hard for her to get out the house and stuff. So we Skyped. We Skyped for two and a half years. We Skyped wow. eight hours a day sometimes until my friggin' eyes were popping out of my head, until my brain hurt. Right. And I would open up my, my books and I would just start reciting and talking. And she just taped everything. And then the next time we spoke, I would read some of the transcriptions. And that's how it was for over two years. And it and worked out well. Yeah, And that, that's kind of a, a, a similarity in songwriting as well. I mean, Clint's world, where if you're co-writing with somebody similar to you writing this book, you know, there's times where I've written songs with a friend where I'm like, I'm really stuck. I don't know. I, I don't know how to take all this information and consolidate it into, into one piece. I hear you. But, but the person you're talking to is sitting there taking notes, reading your notes and, and, you know, in a way just kind of, yeah, just consolidating it down through this little funnel into something that, you know, is, is readable and makes sense and is entertaining and also comes across as, oh yeah, this is definitely Michael. I can hear his voice Wait, almost reading sure. the book to me. It did feel you like, it, it did feel like just talking to you, Michael, having talked to you in the past and then reading the book today, it felt very conversational. It's cool. It's oh, good. A lot of people have said that and, um, it's a good thing, you know, we're going to start an audiobook. So where can people get well, it? That, that's the next thing. Everyone. Because I, I do these uh, Instagram live chats Monday, Wednesday, Friday at four o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, and the first thing everyone says, "When can we get the audio book?" Right. Well, in these crazy quarantine days, um, people aren't back at work like I feel they could and or should be. So, um, I, you know, I have to. My publishers, I think they're just getting back to work now. So I'm going to ask them about that. 
um, because I think you would make a fabulous uh, audio book, um, a hilarious audio book. Yeah, it, well, there are a lot of funny moments for sure. Yeah, and, you, and you've got a great, a great voice, a great personality, and I, I think you know having get in the studio and, and, and reading this book, you know, it, like Clint, Clint said, you know, not only if you read it, it sounds like you're reading it, you, you hear your voice, but to actually have an audio version of it would be awesome just to, you know, even go a step further into your personality in, in relation to this book. Well, and where can we say, just, let's go ahead and just say this a few times through the interview. People, I got it from Amazon today, the Kindle version. And I saw also that the, is the hardback also available there? Where can people? There is no hardback. Okay. On Amazon.com, there's a Kindle and a paperback. Gotcha. Cool. And when you get the paperback, there is about 85 crazy color pictures in the book. If you don't have the book yet, I'll get it to you. Um, but there's a great uh, photo in there of mm -hmm. the first oh, nice. day. Cliff and Kirk were at my office. Wow. And that was 2017 backstage with James. Mm. And that's me and Lars, 1984 backstage in London. They were, getting, they were getting, <laughs> I know, please, we both look 12 years old. They were getting their Ride the Lightning silver record for Music for Nations. And that also was uh, two years ago with Lars backstage at a show. One Man. of the things I found interesting in the book today, Michael, that I don't think we talked yes, to you talked to about with you, and I want to hear about the stuff before that too, because I I was compiling a list of all the bands you saw in the early seventies: Alice Cooper, oh, Lou boy. Reed, Aerosmith, Bowie, Patty, all the Patty Smith stuff. I'm like, shit, sure. we have to talk about all that. But one of the things that struck me to get into a little bit of Metallica stuff is you said that when the boys came in, I guess huh? you guys had all, you had taken the executives to the Roseland Ballroom for the Megaforce night, right? And the next day, they came in, and you said that the, the one that was most professional and most talkative was Cliff, which I found <laughs> really, really fascinating. Well, um, yes, it, <laughs> my brain. It's summer of 1984. Mm -hmm. They were part of a Megaforce evening at Roseland. Right. Um, it was with Anthrax and Raven. Uh, they were the middle act. Um, it was packed. It was sold out. I've told this story for 35 years already. It's fine. Uh, it's all parts of it are in my memoir. Um, but yeah, you know, they tore the roof off that place. There were probably 3,500 uh, kids there enjoying, loving every waking moment of it. Uh, Anthrax went over well and Raven went over well. But of course, at that point in time in 84, Metallica were the underground band creating a friggin' buzz. Hold that thought. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and, since you're taping me, um, they, they were creating a buzz. And, you know, back then, um, all the young people were handing out flyers, like, come see my band and stuff. And, of course, the added attraction in 1984 that um, it came out before I got to Elektra, but I got this little wow. Metallica demo. Wow. Is that the original from that time? I think it is, because I don't know who would have given it to me. Let's see. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. So was that came, yeah. was that just it another that was another typical kind of demo that would come across your desk at Electra? Because I know you were just listening to demos a lot and you were an A and R executive. Uh, my job was to listen to uh, unsigned artists every darn day of my life for twenty five years. There were um, crates and crates of cassettes and um, Wow. Vinyl, every, everyone looking for a major deal. Most of it was rotten, forgive me, but that's, you know, sure. rotten is rotten. Yeah. A lot of it was good. And some, very few, unless I got it from, you know, a colleague or something, um, 
rare was anything that I got out of that box great. Um, You know, good might be okay for some people, but, you know, I I couldn't get myself involved with, oh, they're good, because, you know, there'd be a million bands that I'd have to go see. So I really Uh knew how to hone my instincts and focus on what I personally felt was great. Uh, So... It's Roseland. It's August of 84. And I went backstage after the show. I'm drunk. I'm drinking. I'm hugging Lars. I'm kissing everybody. And uh, James is, you know, toweling off his head. And he's looking at me like, who's this person, please? And Lars says, guys, this is Michael Alago from Electra Records. Now, you know, if they were 21, I was 23. You know, I didn't look like a corporate guy. I never have looked like anybody corporate. You know, I probably had a ripped up plasmatics t-shirt on and <laughs> jeans. Uh and um, they all looked at me like, wow, this is the guy from Electra. So I, uh, we had a great time. The next day, I invited them up to the Electra offices. They came up. In the afternoon, we had lunch. I ordered beer and Chinese food. And um, they knew a bit of the history of Electra. So it's 1984. And I gave them cassettes and vinyl of The Doors, the MC5, the Stooges. And all of a sudden, Cliff says to me, you have any Simon and Garfunkel? Mm. <laughs> like, no, Cliff, that's CBS. But if you want Simon <laughs> and Garfunkel, I will gladly get you Simon and Garfunkel. You know, when um, he wasn't the most chatty that day, but he was talkative. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I also found that he was the most prolific in my mind of the musicians mm-hmm. in the band then. Um he liked all kinds of music. And so mm-hmm. when I told him about it, like this esoteric label that we distributed called Nunsuch, his, his eyes just opened up and I gave him a box of all this very interesting stuff. <clears throat> um, you know, he was such a lovely young man and uh, funny and smart. And, you know, I didn't have many um, occasions to hang out with him because I was East Coast, they were West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to gigs back then. And then, of course, in um, 1986, there was that fatal bus accident. So, uh, yeah. It's interesting. I was reading in the book about how they were on your radar, and I guess Johnny Z had approached you about trying to help Raven out, which is the band he was pretty stoked about. And then you were kind of more interested in Metallica. And you went out to the Stone to see them on the West Coast? Yeah. The very first time I saw them was... um, 1984, I was still living in Brooklyn, and I worked at the Ritz. And me and my friend Phil Cavano from Monster Magnet, uh, who was not in Monster Magnet then, uh, he was in a band called Blitzspear, I think, and we walked about seven blocks from my home under New Trick Day Avenue in Brooklyn, and there was Lamore, rock capital of the world. And Metallica (laughs) were playing, and they blew us away. And my thought in 1982 was to book them at the Ritz which everybody knows probably now as Webster Hall. Right. Um, so, but I don't know, for some reason, it didn't happen. So fast forward, I get my a and job at Electra in 1983. I have some business to do on the West Coast, and I knew they were playing at the Stone. I go see them, and um, I went backstage, and I said hello to Lars, and I said, this is my card. Um, and uh, he was excited, and, you know, he knew that I knew that they were on an independent label. And I just said, you know what? If you come to New York, let me know. So not a lot transpired between me and the band 
then. But uh, Johnny Z from Megaforce Records soon became a colleague of mine. Uh, they were they were totally an independent label. I don't know how many how much funds they had. I don't think it was much. Um, so he also sent me a box of records that included Anthrax and Raven and Metallica and probably Testament and blah blah blah. But yes, he was very, very interested in uh, Raven getting a major deal. Mm-hmm. I gave him $5,000 and I said, give me back five of your most fabulous songs. You know, um, they gave me back five great songs. But like I tell everyone, uh, I, you know, the problem was I heard Kill Em All. Right. And, you know, for me that and for everybody who loves hard rock and heavy metal, that record was a game changer. Hmm. yeah mm-hmm. absolutely no but none of us come on none of us had heard stuff like that before right yeah um you know and these were young people who borrowed from british heavy metal from punk rock right uh from traditional hard rock and metal they speeded that whole friggin' thing up and there you right, go yeah. so you know when i told john uh, that i didn't want to sign raven and I wanted to sign Metallica, that phone conversation didn't go very well. Um, <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine. But um, fast forward, in the end, you know, the band really needed to be on a major label to get where they had to go. And so, uh, like I always say, I keep it simple, money talks. So Megaforce walked away financially satisfied. We got the band. And the short version is... <laughs> The rest is history. Mm, right. <laughs> so, yeah. so many people know because of um, all the interviews I've done, uh, um, my documentary. You, you probably Google me and find all this stuff out about Metallica. So, yeah, that's, I think I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, uh, I think so. The long winded version. Sorry. Well, no, that's why we like talking to you. And by the way, a debt of gratitude we all owe to you for bringing Metallica to the masses. Yeah, and no so I, I have a few questions just centered around the, the gig of AR. Just mm-hmm. as you talk about it, it sounds sure. so romantic. If you flying out of the West Coast, you get to go see these bands. It sounds like you were given a lot of power to make a lot of decisions. Here's five grand to go get me a great Raven demo. Uh, hey, we saw this great band called Metallica, but they're signed to this smaller label. We want to sign them anyway. Let's figure it out. I love the story in your book about the executive coming in with the cigar, and he says, well, if Michael wants you, we want you too. Mm-hmm. That sounds sure. just like so much power for such a young guy. I mean, how did you uh, manage that? Well, I think it was a combination of power. I don't know if, I don't know if the right word is power. Bob Krasnow. Like trust. trust, sure. Trust, I'll yeah. buy that. Um, <laughs> our chairman of Electra Records, Bob Krasnow, gave his A&R people I guess you could call it leeway. Right. And you were either going to sink or swim. Mm. I personally was intending on swimming. Um, yeah. You know, when I first got the job, uh, after I interviewed with Krasnow, I had to ask a friend of mine, what does A&R mean? <laughs> they, you know, of course, they, they laughed in my face. And uh, I, su- I learned very quickly that A&R means artist in repertoire. A&R is the most important department at a record company. Uh, if you um, don't sign great bands and make great records, you're out of a job. So mm-hmm. I, like I said earlier, I really focused my ears to what I personally felt was great and from there i had to hope that i was making those right decisions um 
I imagine when you signed a band like Metallica, you're pretty much given a little bit of carte blanche for a minute, right? That you, you can sort oh, of uh, relax a little bit, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, I could relax for one minute. Yeah. But, you know, I was, a, I was a young person. I was 23, 24 years old. Yeah. And besides being at work in the office in the morning, meeting with unsigned artists, lawyers, managers, and publishers, I was out every night carrying on, yeah. you know? And I was traveling, and that was the beauty of the job, too. And for me, I'm a very creative person, and I love music and art and theater. So, you know, whenever I traveled to the West Coast, to the South, to Canada, to uh, abroad, I always took an extra two days uh, in front of whatever I had to do to get to a museum, Smart. to get to, you know, just wandering and exploring the cities mm -hmm. and, and taking pictures. That was like my whole thing. It was so satisfying to be able to do that. One of the photos that's in your book is of you and Lars in London, right? Doing a Music for Nations thing. So uh -huh. were you a part of the... So... Okay, so Metallica signs to Electra. You know, they were on Megaforce. Right. And I, I was wondering if you could help us kind of understand some of those. Well, if I'm correct. I think Megaforce was only a North America deal. Yes. Martin Hooker in the UK signed them for the UK. I just went over there in 84 because I had just signed them to Electra, and I believe we had them for North America and Canada, and I just wanted to go. I just wanted to go. And yeah. I have go on an evening when they were being presented with their silver records of Ride the Lightning from Music for Nations. And it was a just um, a marvelous night. It was fantastic. Did the boys have Man, a sense of like, well, it's all happening. We deserve to be here. We're just going to enjoy it. What, what was their vibe like on that kind of well, mighty ascent? Again, I don't know about using the word deserve. Right. Uh, they were young people who were always very focused about what they wanted to do. Um, you know, even when people call them and we all call them and we were alcoholica, um, they were always just very focused, as you could hear on those first two records. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And from Kill Em All to Ride the Lightning, they, they, there was a maturity that happened mm -hmm. from the first to the second album. Oh, yeah. Songs, length of songs, arrangements, lyrics. I mean, come on. I mean... Kill 'em All was just like thrash in your face. Let's go berserk. And then when you got to ride the lightning, things were fast. But, you know, you could tell that these people were thinking really hard about what these songs should sound like. And, um, you know, as we all know, from record to record, they just kept growing as artists. Right. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they didn't need or want any help from anybody. What did you guys think as a record label about them wanting to make those albums, um, thinking of Lightning and, and Puppets in Copenhagen? Was there any type of, well, that's pretty far from home and we can't keep an eye on things? Or was it just like, well, let them do what they do. They're great. Well, uh, there's a little 50-50. Yeah. You know, when you uh, invest a lot of money into new artists, and this was going to be our first record for Elektra, even though we uh, picked up immediately Ride the Lightning, and then some months down the road, we picked up a Kill em All, which was all in that Megaforce Elektra deal. I just thought to myself, you know, I, I can't let you just 
leave the country without me knowing like what the fuck is going on here. Yeah, right. But I had because, like I said earlier, I had a certain trust in them because they knew what they were doing. So of course, the way Lars would appease me was that he would send me cassettes of uh, parts of songs, <laughs> and maybe I think he might even send dats, not cassettes anymore. Wow. It's nineteen eighty. 85, 86, when they were recording at Sweet Silence. Um, so I, I would get these um, dats and music that were like, oh my God, let me call Lars. And we would just talk about parts of songs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once I heard how mature these bits of songs were, I just had to say, you know what? Let them go. Yeah. I, I did always keep in touch, calling the studio wondering how our timing was, where we were in production, hoping that we were not going to uh, overspend. Um, I don't remember if we overspent. I'm sure we probably did. But keep in mind, we had the right band. So, so we were kind of allowing them to do what they needed to do to make this record master. Yeah. So did you kind of realize at a certain point that <clears throat> you, you want to let the guys kind of go on their own as far as the creative side? So did your attention kind of more focus on that logistic side of, like you said, the money, the time, all that kind of stuff, because they were, you know, just full bore on the creative side? Sure. I don't get involved with anything in business affairs, except I would say to Gary Kasson, our head of business affairs, Gary, please make this happen. And he was a guy who really liked me a lot and I trusted and liked him. So he did whatever I needed him to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was always on the creative side with my bands, but, you know, these were people who kind of wanted to be left alone. And, you know, in being left alone, you see what happened. So yeah. like I said, I only got to hear bits and pieces until I get the, I got the final record in New York. Wow. And it was mixed by Michael, Michael Wagner. Wagner. Yeah. Yeah. The great, the great Michael Wagner, mm -hmm. who I adore. And mm -hmm. uh, I would bring those uh, tapes over to George Sterling, may he rest in peace, at Sterling Sound. And um, Cliff Bernstein would be there with me and we would just rocking out listening to the final Man. version of Master of Puppets. I'd bring the uh, acetate back to my office to hear that no snap crackles and pops to hear that it's how we really wanted it to sound. We Cliff was with me as well that day, turning it up to 10, losing our minds. Uh, I'm sure everyone in the office couldn't work <laughs> that day, but you know, that's how it is. A and R we do what we need to do. Yeah, <laughs> what did, what did not, maybe not puppets itself, but like what did an album at that time for a band at that level? What did that generally cost? I mean, was it was it a huge? I mean, Electra was so massive, right? So, I'm just curious where it fit in with like your Duran Durans of the '86 versus a yeah, band like yeah. Puppets and Copenhagen. You know, that's a, that's a, I, that's a question I couldn't answer. Yeah, I'm sure it was a small couple of hundred thousand. Yeah, right. Had to be. Had to be. Yeah, you know, between between traveling, between studio, between Fleming, between Michael, you know. Pulling that all together, yeah. that ain't cheap. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm sure it was a small couple of hundred thousand to make that record. What do you, I know you haven't really been as involved in the music industry as of late, but what do you think about the current, I mean, I feel like A&R doesn't really exist anymore. Do you have any thoughts about, 
I mean, back then, you'd have a guy like Don't you. Don't get me started. Uh-oh. Here we go. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sorry to interrupt Too you. Late. No, no, no. Go ahead. It sounds like you understand what I'm asking, right? So Sure. You know, I, I was officially an A&R executive from about 1983 to 2005. That's 22, 23 years right there. I was out every night. I listened to all kinds of music. I was very discreet uh, about the type the artists that I signed. Over the course of those years, I did not sign a lot of artists. But I, like I said, I was very specific. We're going to mm-hmm. fast forward. I stopped working uh, uh, officially in 2005 because here we are, the internet is coming aboard, the, uh, there's file sharing, uh, stealing, and downloading, and all this stuff that was creating a bit of havoc. And then, of course, there was that time when Lars had his thing with Napster. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff meant was artists just want to get paid. And as we know, still artists are the last ones to get paid for all the hard work they do. Right. Um, so what was your question again, Clint? Uh, just comments on sort of the current lack of A&R and how important it was. You think about it. I think about a band like The Cure who never would make it now because there's not someone like you finding them, discovering them, nurturing them, and fighting for them at a major label to get their music heard. And it, I don't know, it makes me sad. Uh, and so I just wanted, well, as a former kind of legendary A&R executive, oh I wanted to just get your opinion. Oh, I scared oh him away. He's <laughs> done, he's done. <laughs> no, because the phone was ringing. Very good question. I think about it all the time. So after when I left the record companies, the last company I was at was Palm Pictures, where I made three records, Fozzie, Speed Dealer, and Local H. Hmm. I stopped working because I'm not feeling good again. I, I, I was sick in the 90s and I was feeling like not so good right now. I didn't like what the music business was turning into. People weren't buying records like they used to. And I thought, you know what? I'm done. Fast forward a little bit, 2009 and 2010, Cindy Lauper calls me and asks me if I want to A&R two of her records. In 2009, she made a dance record called Bring You to the Brink. Bring You to the mm-hmm. Brink, a dance record. Did okay. I was super excited when she called me back again um, and asked me, she said, you know, in that voice, that Cindy Lauper voice uh, (laughs) from Queens, you know, Michael, have you ever made a blues? I wasn't going to imitate the voice. Sometimes I do. (laughs) Um, Have you ever made a blues record? I said, no, Sin, why? And Cindy being always adventurous, said, I want to make a blues album, and I want you to A&R it. I was thrilled. I was honored. I was excited. And uh, we made a blues record called Memphis Blues. And um, I'll just tell you a little bit. Uh, I would sit in her kitchen on the Upper West Side. We'd eat chi- this has a lot of Chinese food in it. <laughs> we'd have Chinese food. She had box sets, vinyl of blues recordings. We were on the uh, internet Googling a blues artists that we both admired. And we started just pulling songs here and there um, until we found a bunch of songs that she could sing that came obviously from a woman's point of view. And um, we found a fabulous um, young producer. When I say young, he must have been 40, named Scott Bomar. Uh, she was on a little label called um, Downtown Records then. So it's 2010. We go down to uh, Memphis and uh, we have a ball making that record. All of Al Green's band, Isaac Hayes' band. We love uh, we love Johnny Lang, Johnny Lang, uh, Ann Peebles, who had a 
song back in the day called I Can't Stand the Rain. Um, when, you know, Cindy loved that, her voice. And when she asked Scott, she goes, do you think we could ever get Ann Peebles on this record? He said, sure, I'll call her. She lives around the corner. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wow. Memphis, you don't know who you're going to find in Memphis. So we made that record. Um, and there's a wonderful story, which I won't tell anybody right now, in my book, I Am Michael Lago, <laughs> about the making of that record, Memphis Blues, and the title of the chapter is called Memphis Blues. And, you know, we were we wandered around a few days before we started recording, and we went to the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was killed. We went to the Civil Rights Museum, and all this heavy-duty, dark stuff started happening. Not in a scary way, but in this historic way and Mm. we were just thrilled to then get in the recording studio to make the record it got nominated for a grammy for best contemporary blues album it didn't win but what we thought what it made us think was that we did an extraordinary my brain just stopped (laughs) yeah okay it's back we made an extraordinary record and we got recognized for that sure right um yeah that's awesome so yes i am not in the business like i used to be oh a and r people how would a band like metallica whatever today's version of metallica that doesn't have a guy like you finding them in these clubs and with your ear to the ground like guy booking the ritz and then getting the electric gig how does a band like metallica have the same trajectory it's a good question and a tough answer um just so you know there has to be a and r guys at these companies or else there are no records coming out whether you like those records or not that's another story um you know it seems like now bands have to have such a i feel a and r people don't do what i did back then right i mean i work my butt off every literally every single night of the week Right. Morning, noon, and I think because of the internet, because of YouTube, uh, because it is easy to just hear somebody on Spotify, um, it's easier for the A&R person these days. Record companies don't have finance, uh, finances like they used to, to cultivate a young band. Right. Because so that's, that's what it takes, good. right? Oh, absolutely, it does. It takes money Nothing and happens. time and be- believing in them, and they maybe they fail a little bit, and you still write the check, and you because you believe sure. in them. Sure, right? absolutely, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, in these days, it, what's kind of funny? I don't know if I brought this up the last time I was here. Mm-hmm. Mm, let's see, a year and a half ago, two years ago, my cousin Julie, <laughs> uh, who is down in South Florida, said, "Could you listen to a CD? My neighbor's son is in a band." <laughs> oh boy yeah I, I haven't heard that for 30 years now <laughs> but it's my cousin so i said sure she sends me the cd and now i'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent um uh and the band is called ether coven they're from south florida they're heavy as oh we've said the f word here before sure, right? yeah oh yeah yeah they're heavy as fuck. They are brutal. They are atmospheric. They are majestic. And I thought, I'm going to Fort Lauderdale to see them. I go down and see them, and they are magic. So I chatted up the guys. I said, uh, you know, I asked them if they knew who I was, and, and they, of course, knew. How could you not in this day and age? <laughs> um, and that's not about ego. It's just about, like, I'm just out there all the time still sure. in different formats <laughs> so um they had an independent label record out called there is nothing left for me here i said give me give me a dozen or two 
So in answering your question a little bit long-winded, I sent their independent CD out to Napalm, Nuclear Blast, Seasons of Mist, Century Media, uh, uh, Relapse, all those type labels who one right. would think, oh, perfect. I sent them out to 10 labels. Nine out of the 10 labels passed. And they passed with by saying, dude, you got a great band here, but they have terrible numbers. Right, mm -hmm. social media and Thank streaming you. numbers, right? That's what and it is. Yeah. Own, it pisses me off. And at first, you know, like I thought, what are the numbers? Oh, numbers, Twitter, Instagram, right. Facebook. Right. You know, yeah. and, and I say this is my, my standard answer, you know, Numbers do not tell you how talented somebody is. It's a number. And it's up to you if you're signing the act to get those. If that's all what you care about these days, the numbers up to a certain place right. so that there, there is an audience. They're building an audience with the help of a label that has some money yeah so mm -hmm. nine out of right. ten passed my friend mike gitter at century media said you know what love these guys i'm gonna take a chance so mike took a chance we got a little bit of money for the new album the old album videos art and we made this new record called uh everything is temporary except suffering and it was produced by eric rattan uh in uh, uh of morbid angel uh in up in florida where all those friggin heavy bands come from these days <laughs> right. and it, it's it's a terrific record it is not radio friendly on any level whatsoever but man is it good well and neither was metallica that's, that's, for their first 10 years exactly and, you know. yeah for so, sure. you know, that's how i uh i work in the music business these days um when i feel like it if i hear something that blows my mind which is few and far between and um because I'm always doing something for my movie or my new book. Isn't so that, it sounds is, like you're sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, uh, it sounds like even though you kind of stopped a and R in full time in 2005, that you still have your ear to the ground for music. And when something comes up, like your cousin hitting you up with a CD, you clearly have plenty of connections left where it's like, you know what? I still can't help you, even though this isn't my main job anymore. And you're, I, from what I can tell, you still have that passion you did when you first started. I do. It's the Alago you know, way. It is the Alago <laughs> way, exactly. I mean, I think in my book, under in the Brooklyn chapter, which is at the beginning, I believe I say, um, I think I came out of the womb loving music. You did. That's one of the first that sentences. Music was, yeah. I came out of the womb loving music. There was never a day that music didn't encompass my every waking moment. In 1966, I started listening to 77 WABC on my portable transistor radio. The Beatles, Steppenwolf, Aretha Franklin, Martha and the Vandellas, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, the Beach Boys, and Dusty Springfield. A few years later, I watched Creedence Clearwater Revival, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Grand Funk Railroad, and Todd Rundgren on American Bandstand, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, and Soul Train. The Music was my lifeline, was my nourishment. That's how I grew up. It was the beginning of my journey. See, we're getting and the audiobook right now. Here we go. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The live yeah. debut of the audiobook. So <laughs> going, going back to the, the Brooklyn days, I, I wanted to get back to that anyway. And uh, we talked a lot about your upbringing and, and uh, you know, coming from a Puerto Rican family and, and being in Brooklyn and moving around. I was amazed reading today at all these bands you got to see in sort of a golden age of that New York, like Lou Reed and Alice Cooper. And those experiences must have been pretty transforming and, and really informed a lot of your sensibilities, right? I'll tell you just a little story. I'll try to keep. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, it's 1973, and my cousin Caroan has a boyfriend. We affectionately called him Manny the Greek from Astoria, and Manny the Greek had two Alice Cooper tickets, and my cousin like she had a period or something, and she didn't want to go, and uh, she said, "Take my 13-year-old cousin." So Manny the Greek took me to see Alice Cooper at Madison Square Garden. It was the last night of the Billion Dollar Babies tour. And that transformed my life. Absolutely. Never mind, I'm 13 wow. and I'm in an 18,000 seat uh, arena. Uh, and uh, I had heard Alice Cooper because of late night television, all those music um, stations that featured music. And it blew my mind. It really did. And right after that, I saw Lou Reed at the Felt Forum doing his rock and roll animal, recording his rock and roll, legendary rock and roll animal um, album. Wow. Uh, I remember getting two, two tickets to Todd Rundgren in Central Park for $2.50 each. It was his birthday. And his backup singers were Luther Vandross, Ava Cherry, and Hall and & Oates. Wow. Todd Rundgren, Jeez. who wow. was like, if you love Todd and people who love Todd say, Todd is God. So those were the early concerts that I got exposed to because I was a curious young person. Because you were even going up to Harlem and seeing Patti LaBelle at the Apollo also. So you, you had a, and you were seeing a bunch of Broadway and Rocky Horror Picture Show. You had a, a really diverse taste, which, which is perfect for an A&R executive. Well, I, I was a young, young guy who really had a passion for the arts, I, I, I don't, I can't specifically tell you where that all came from, but you know, I love music and art and theater, and um, uh, yeah. So very early on, I remember hearing about a show called The Chorus Line, and uh, it was 1975, and it was um, tickets, or believe it or not, oh darn, where are these tickets? Tickets were ten dollars. Honey, if a ticket was less than $150 on Broadway these days, right. you'd be lucky. But, <laughs> you know, so what do I do? I get a ticket for a chorus line. I saved the ticket. It was a big, beautiful silver ticket. It was wow. 10 bucks. 10 bucks. Wow. That same year, I go see Rocky Horror on Broadway. And that's little old me coming from Brooklyn, I had a, a, a bag under my arm. I was either coming from Titus Oaks Records in Brooklyn that afternoon or or what was on in the East Village, uh, Free Being Records. And I went with I went to see Rocky Horror on Broadway. It was a flop. Nobody oh, wow. believed it. it was a flop. Yeah. It lasted maybe 45 performances. But already it was something that Richard O'Brien had created in the UK. So I, my, there were two paparazzi people, young people who were like, we got to meet these people. I said, ah, let's go backstage. And they were like, wait, 
do you know these people? I said, no, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> so I'm walking backstage. I don't know how I got through the stage door. Meatloaf and Tim Curry are coming out. Um, I introduce myself. I let them know that I've seen the show five or six times. And maybe those five and six times I snuck in. And what I did what they call <laughs> second act. I second acted it when people, after they came out for their cigarettes and went back in, I just, and, and the Belasco was set up like a nightclub. So I found a chair somewhere and I sat for the second act. It's funny you mentioned about sneaking backstage. It's something we talked about a lot. Ethan and I are both touring musicians and you just learned that if you, if you just look like you belong there, you can get most places you want to go. Well, not like yeah, uh, uh, back in the day. Yes. Cause I got backstage everywhere from Bruce Springsteen, um, I don't know, to, to the Rocky Horror Show, you know? And these days, uh, because of the world in which we live, there is security every right. few feet wherever right. one goes. I'll say this. There's a story in the book that, we, that we'll leave for people to go look for in the book, but the story of you and Bruce Springsteen backstage is, oh, it's hysterical. is incredible. <laughs> and we'll let people wonder what that is. Go check out the book on Amazon. Easy read. I read it this morning. Um, well, that's great. You know, I love that people can read the book in, in one sitting. Like one guy the other night, he didn't mean it to come out like this. He said, I was in bed with you the other night. And I was like, I beg <laughs> And your I also heart. read your book. <laughs> right, right, exactly. He said, oh, but wait, I've gotten to my wife and I. I said, oh, now, okay. Now you, you got to clean this stuff up now. Now there's three but of yeah, us, okay. There's a very fun picture of me and Bruce backstage. Yeah. Wow. The story of that photo is, is amazing. Yes, it's fun. I have my, uh, back, back then there was a company, it's an Iggy Pop uh, t-shirt I have on. Back then in Cream, C-R-E-E-M, Cream Magazine, Cream Publication, mm -hmm. fabulous rock and roll magazine, there was an ad for a company um, called Lonely Ladies. And Lonely Ladies was a t-shirt company. And they had the odd, like Mae West, Todd Rundgren, Marlena Dietrich, Alice Cooper, but their tagline, which I'm just going to say it, I dreamed, uh, and whoever the t-shirt was that you were buying, you would put your name in there. I dreamed I was raped by Todd Rundgren in my Lonely Ladies t-shirt. <laughs> right? Wow. That wow. was the 70s. Can you, I, you know what? I put that ad up on Facebook, and by night, it was taken off. Wow. That's crazy, man. Yeah, different era for sure. Different, the liberties. Yeah, totally. So Clint, even though, you know, we forgive you for touching yourself and that's how you got disconnected. <laughs> right. Uh, where, you know, uh, where were we in this whole interview? You were talking about, uh, well, you were talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I, w I was curious, the picture of you with uh, uh, Tim Curry and Meatloaf, was Meatloaf part of the production or was he just hanging out? Oh, no, 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 no. He was part of the production. Okay, he was in it. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's interesting yeah. to see you in a young meatloaf. And of course, you're the, you, you're, you're the, like a baby in that photo. I was, I was a baby. <laughs> I had to, I, really, I had to have been maybe 15 years old. Yeah, 15 and years really old. And really, I think the bigger point we were talking about, too, is that you, you loved rock and roll. You saw Alice Cooper. It blew your mind. Oh, sorry. But yes. Then, but then you also would go see Patti LaBelle at the Apollo. You would go see Rocky Horror Picture Show. And you were talking about how you just you love the arts, you know? And, and uh, I, I was out all the time. And, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Clint. No, no, go ahead. I did mostly all of this all by myself. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't think about calling someone to do this with me. I, I, you know, saw this in the village voice 
and I would just get my ass on a train into Manhattan, and I just, that's what I did. But the city in the 70s, if we learn anything from Scorsese movies, it was pretty dangerous, right? So Yes, it was. Yes. I was a young person who had no fear. I got on the train with my little green knapsack and my Minolta camera, and I just got to where I was going because I had to hear the music. Now, mm -hmm. I was probably um, very naive. And uh, yes, I knew I had to watch where I was going when I was walking down the Bowery because there was a lot of crime, homeless, drunks. But I had to get to CBGB, right. and yeah. I did. And, you know, thank God all those years. You know, I was like 15. I looked like I was 12. I was cute. I had long hair. And uh, thank God nothing ever happened to me. I just always made it to where the music was and uh, where I wanted and needed to be. Do you have any? It almost sounds. Go ahead, Ethan. Sorry. You were unknowingly training yourself to be a fantastic A&R guy and be able to be in position to discover bands like Metallica because you had, at that point, by the time you discovered them, you had so much experience under your belt of just seeing live music, interacting with people and getting backstage and seeing the ins and outs of how they worked. You were, it's like you were a self-taught A&R person at this point. I get kind of, I guess, sure. I just, you know, I didn't have time for people. I just, like I said, I just had to be where the music was. And back right. then, um, getting backstage was just not tough like it was then. I knew how to talk my way into getting into bars and clubs and backstage. It just, it just happened. And it happened because... That's how my life was meant to go. Right. Like, you know, like, you know as a young person, <laughs> I always said, I didn't play an instrument. I had to be in the music business, but I had also, I had no plan B. Right. No plan B. Right. So I just, yeah, so I, I just, I made it happen. I really did. Happen, now, yeah. I made it happen with help along the way from many mentors and, uh, you know, other executives. Um, but, you know, up until I was 18, 19 years old, I made all that stuff happen because I went, I went out every night. Do you have any memorable stories of seeing the Ramones? I know you said you saw the Ramones so many times at CBGB's, obviously a historic band that, especially at that time that we all wish we could get in a time machine and go see, but you went and saw that all the time just because that's where you live. That was your scene. I did. Funny you ask about the Ramones today because a friend of mine, Jimmy Marino, is putting out this memorabilia book of everything he's ever collected, and he has collected on the wow. Ramones, and I had to write something. Hmm. So I remember um, hearing about the Ramones in 1974. Uh, Hilly Crystal, owner of CBGB's, booked them there. About a year and a half later in 75, I got to see them at CB's, and they must have played 25 songs in 17 minutes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything was under two minutes. It, as we know, present day about the Ramones, um, everything was super fast. And that year, they got their deal on Sight Records. And 1976, um, their first album came out. Yeah. They were unlike anything we had all ever heard before. You know, and that's Absolutely. way before even like when we say when we heard Metallica, it was unlike anything we ever heard before, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it was called punk rock in 75, 76, and it was fast, and it was in your face, and you never heard anything like it. And you know what? 
we wanted more. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, I mean, it, it's it's well documented in, in this uh, Clash documentary, Westway of the World. Joe Strummer talks about when they first heard the Ramones, they realized, oh, we can do that too. So without the Ramones, you wouldn't even have a band like the Clash. You Isn't know, it's like for as simple as simple as songs they wrote and beautiful songs they wrote, three or four chords. I mean, how far that resonated across an ocean to influence all this i mean an entire whole genre of music that still exists today, today. It's insane. and then of course as michael as you point out in your book the synthesis of thrash metal which metallica invented as far as i'm concerned really sure. it's them doing bay area metal but but mixed with that punk rock sensibility that's the stew i think that makes thrash metal and that's oh, yeah. that's ramones you know that's you can start tracing the thread M- michael what do you think would have happened to metallica if electro had if you hadn't come into their lives what do you think would have happened to them? Well, they probably would have landed somewhere, I suppose, right? They would have been exactly where they are present day. <laughs> and I'm going to make a little <laughs> joke about it. And present day, they are all, like us all, we are in quarantine. And if we want to fast forward, listen, I'll, I'll backtrack just for one second. Okay. You know what? If I didn't sign them, they were going to be signed by somebody else. Right. But yeah. I guy out there every night i was young like they were young they related to me i related to them they knew instinctively like i knew instinctively we were going to help each other Mm. and i Mm -hmm. certainly did and i'm very proud of that fast forward guys here we are talking on skype in this quarantine world we are living in at the moment i was telling ethan when you got knocked off or knocked up or whatever the hell happened (laughs) to you that you weren't here Mm -hmm. um that we are living in what i call quarantine days d-a-z-e quarantine days Mm -hmm. and you know if we're keeping this just to music of course in these quarantine days isn't it marvelous that we got to see James and the guys do an acoustic version of Blackened? Oh, we yeah. loved it. Absolutely. Loved oh, it. Absolutely. I don't know just now if I was going to cry or my arms and my head was tingling. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. And then, you know, because as we all are avid music fans, um, you know, recently Nick Bocott and Steve Grimmett from Grim Reaper uh, put out a version of Heaven and Hell with some of their studio friends mm-hmm. and we right. hadn't heard heaven and hell what since uh, 1980 when it came out right yeah and recently century media records did something on youtube called the isolation festival and mm-hmm. it was the best of all of their bands in isolation doing their thing right? yeah beauty of that is because you know I can only speak for myself right this very second is, you know, because I love music and I'm always out there scouring everywhere. And I know Mike Gitter, he said, go on Saturday to YouTube. So I went and I got to hear these bands that I never heard before. Like um, I just found this band on there called The Offering. And they have a video called uh, Ultraviolence, and it's fabulous. And then I got to see one of my other favorite bands on that isolation festival called Voivod from Canada. And you could tell it wasn't their thing to do this (laughs) separately, but they rose to the occasion. And coincidentally, I had to write this down because uh, I think just two days ago, Voivod have a new song out. on YouTube called The End 
Oh, yeah. The end of dormancy. Very apropos to today. Wow. And mm -hmm. it's almost like Voivod does jazz. There are horns, <laughs> the trumpets, and everything. But so typical of Voivod, like when we heard back then, the Thrash album, Killing Technology. Also right. a record that only Voivod could have made. So all I'm saying, long-winded, one more time, is that in these quarantine days... I'm glad that I have all these friends out there like yourself and all, all over the world that we're all just telling each other almost like DIY again. Here, listen to this, listen to that. Yeah. Oh, it's really, uh, it's really something else. And one of my all time favorite bands, Creator. 666 World Divided. Thank you. There we go. Oh, now I can breathe. 666 World Divided. <laughs> um, Creator from Germany, Mila. You know, I've been talking about you 35 years now, dude. Anyway, <laughs> so here we are in quarantine and Clint and Ethan, I don't know where you want to take this interview. Are we closing? Whatever you say, I'm yeah, here to do. I think, I think, yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's really generous and it's been good to, uh, I'm really glad we all became friends and I know you and I have exchanged some texts and some phone conversations. Every time I'm up there, I try to get you to come to a, a country show that I'm playing, but. Uh, uh, Wait, you have? Yeah, I've been up there like around a few times I've been up there. I've reached out to you maybe two or three times, but it's usually kind of outside the city and it's like a big country show. Oh, well, show then and... there you go. You say shame on me. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not in the city. It, it begins to be tough because, know. Um, you know, when you go out of the, tr the New York City area and you go in out somewhere in the tri-state area and I don't drive, you can get there. But then there's no way to get back late at right. night. It's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's the only reason we've missed each other. But of course, I'd love to see both of you in any shape, way, or form. Right. Yeah, Keeping yeah. hands above board, uh, Clint. Um, <laughs> when you come to New York City, and uh, whether it's going, whether you are both doing a concert, or we're going to have dinner, or go to the theater or the museum, we got to do it. And oh, I, I love, love being on Metal Up Your Podcast. Well, we love you. We love you, dude. We love having our, you. All our listeners love you. The book is I'm Michael Lago, Breeding Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death. So you're doing these weekly Instagram lives, right? So let's let the people know what those are about, where they can catch you. Because that's cool. I've seen a few of these. It's a cool thing you're doing every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, right? I, I'm on Instagram live chats every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And I just go on there and chat with the people. You know, a lot of those people... Uh, Let's let's uh, circumcise this part as well. <laughs> sure. A lot of those people know about my work. Some are new people. Some are curious. And, you know, it, it, it's just fun because I get asked all kinds of questions from all over the world about how I got into the music business. What is A&R? You know, Metallica, what do you think of them present day? Uh, you know, just all sorts of questions. So I find it delightful. And again, in these quarantine days, everyone has said, Michael, this is such a marvelous break to the tedium of us just being at home. Right. So I don't even just stay on there from four to five because they give you an hour time slot Instagram. So I, when I see that it's almost up the one hour, I let everyone know. I can get back on in 30 seconds. So I'm usually on for two hours. It oh, time okay. flies. It's always a blast. Last week, we had Mina Caputo from Life of Agony on. And, um, I Who think wrote a forward to your book, right? 
Mina wrote the forward. John Joseph from the Cro-Mags wrote a forward. Right. And I was blessed to have marvelous friends who wrote um, on the back of my book some blurbs. Uh, Danny Fields, who managed the Ramones. Jason Newstead from Metallica. Gary Holt from Slayer. And the beautiful Jessica Pimentel from Orange is the New Black. So, oh, yeah. wow. I'm guessing my invitation to write a blurb on the back must have just gotten lost in the mail, which I forgive you for. That's no it big deal. Did, <laughs> it, it did. It did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my computer wasn't working. That yeah, <laughs> internet went out that well, day. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank so you. good to see your face. I love oh, the yeah. book. Everyone, go check the book out. And uh, I hope it's not another two and a half years before we get to talk to you again. Oh, no, 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 please. Um, both of you stay well, stay home if you have to. I always still say, because we're still in the thick of this pandemic, if you gotta go out. Wear those masks. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Grocery store. When I, I went to the grocery store today. I had gloves on. I don't know who's touching that produce, honey. Right. Picking their nose. <laughs> oh yeah. There was a there was a thing on YouTube of a guy going to a buffet, picking up a ladle and sipping the the soup and putting it back. <laughs> wow. Jeez. Wow. Mind boggling. In any insane. event, I love seeing both of you. I love metal up your podcast. Stay <laughs> safe sanitize 24 hours a day and right. we'll know when it's um there's some sort of a safety again to go out into the world and go to all our favorite bands concerts in 2021 and uh nice to see you here thank you, you for having me. all right michael good bye. to see you man <laughs> Advice or what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. 